Hey, kids, it's time for Counting with Bruce Springsteen. Love you like I do. All the New Jersey that you put me through. With Clarence Clements and Stephen Van Zandt. The E Street Pals are all where it's at. I wanna know. Can you tell me? I love Springsteen. Let's listen to the river. See, lately I've been not cutting drink off his bits glass because of making water. him commit to them longer is much funnier, actually. Let's listen <laughs> to the river and drink a glass of water. Hi, everybody. Welcome to I Think You'd Be Into It, the podcast about your faves. I'm your host, Brandon Beck. I'm your other host, Beth Scorzato. Um, and uh, today we're going to take a, uh, a trip into the wilds of New Jersey, the ba- the jungle lands of New Jersey, the Thunder Roads uh, as we of talk New about uh, the the what? <laughs> I was just following up because you kept saying of New Jersey. Yeah, of New Jersey. Um, Only as we Jersey. talk about uh, Jersey's favorite son, Mr. Bruce Springsteen, and joining us to do that is New Jersey's other favorite son. You know him as the bassist for the Hell Yeah Babies and as a writer for Fanbite and Looper, ladies and gentlemen, Dylan Roth. Dylan, welcome to the show. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Hey, bud, that was a bit. Yep. That was a long one. That was a long one. It, it was. Thing. I've learned that if I just stop cutting him off, he has to deeply commit to them, and then he just gets more and more, uh, 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 becomes a, a longer <laughs> tightrope, becomes a longer tightrope walk as he goes. I, I was, I was fully, like, gonna Joseph Gordon-Levitt that one. I was committed to getting through the whole thing, uh, and not plummeting to my death between those two, uh, buildings. Right. Like he did in that movie. Well, I mean, anyway, Dylan, welcome to the show. Whatever. It's great to be here. It's great to do um, this. Yeah, right. Oh, uh, well, you've come to the right place. <laughs> I was going to say, and, and given the band that you're in, you should be used to bits just happening constantly. Oh, absolutely. Uh, this was reminding me that uh, on stage, back when that was a thing, and still now on the live streams on Twitch, um, it's customary between songs for Michael, the lead singer, to kind of launch into something. And uh, and sometimes we'll go back and forth like I'm, I'm frequently the foil for that or Sam will be. But it's usually it's it's Sam's job and Julian's job that the guitar player and the drummer to at some point just start the next song. So he has to stop the bit. Uh, and if they don't do that, he'll just keep going. That's what the drummer in Brandon's band has to do, too, for, uh, for him <laughs> and Madeline. Yeah. What yeah. do you do if the drummer is the one who does the bits? Then you're just I don't know, kidnapped. Man. You can't. Then you're, you then you're bare naked ladies. Um, oh, no. <laughs> anyway, God, this show yeah, might sure as well are. be, I think you'd be into bit. So it's fine. It really, <laughs> it really is. Um, 
you know, we should actually maybe just do a full rebrand. We should talk about that uh, with our PR people Absolutely. after I'm our PR the people recording. Saying no. <laughs> hey, what are your favorite bits? Who are your bits? <laughs> Is our bits good? Are our bits good? I mean, we kind of joke, but um, at the pack every year, I don't know what we're going to do this year. It's going to be sad, but they usually do Janiversary, which is like basically just the like inside baseball show for the theater that they put on for themselves. And that's basically, I think you'd be into bit. They just like redo <laughs> every show gets a slot to just like do whatever their favorite thing was from the year or like write a new thing. It's so self-referential. Yeah. And and I was uh, I was musical director for the house band for this year, um, and our last our bit now. or last year yeah, uh, and, and our bit was for the entire second act of the show, which was done like a fake awards show. Um, when the first act was getting announced, like they had won you know their award, uh, our piano player started playing Memory, <laughs> and so I joined in. And uh, then I leaned over to him and said, let's play memory for every introduction uh, (laughs) for this hour. And he just went like, yeah, all right. And then I texted the drummer, who's also the drummer in my band, the same thing. And he went, yeah, all right. And then uh, like two times later, I get a text from Beth that just says, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is a bit from Kevin Smith's Jersey Girl, right? Oh, it is? In in the uh, in the much maligned uh, Kevin Smith film Jersey Girl, um, the climactic um, talent show, elementary school or middle school talent show at the end of the movie, um, every other performer in the entire talent show is doing memory from Cats, except for the eponymous Jersey Girl who does something from Sweeney Todd. <laughs> oh, you're right. I forgot about that. I'd forgotten that, too, because I haven't seen the movie since around when it came out. But uh, Patrick H. Willems recently did a video uh, about the uh, like the Kevin Smith oeuvre and okay. reminded me of and basically he just saying that, yeah, there's the one really good bit in the movie that works. Uh, and I remember it fondly. That that seems to be the case with a lot of his movies. There's one really good bit in them that works. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Jersey guy, so I had to go through a phase when I was like 19 where I got really into Kevin Smith movies, and uh, uh, you grow, you grow out of it. Well, you're also just a guy of a certain age. Yeah, that's. I mean, I, I I'm sure it, it can't just be New Jersey, right? Because it's he, not he just New Jersey. Yeah, I remember <laughs> early on, early on in our. I fully caught it in North Carolina. Oh yeah, I mean, I remember early on in our relationship, Brandon and I having a um. Not very serious, but very real. That has never been resolved. Fight about how I think Clerks Two is stupid. <laughs> Clerks Two is stupid. You're right. Clerks Two is the better one. You're so wrong, and I can't get into how wrong you are on this podcast because we <laughs> we'll have to do another episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for the short uh, version, simply watch Patrick Ake's. I'm going to give free promo to go for it. Pat, to, to somebody who does not need it, Patrick Ake Willems. Uh. Watch that Kevin Smith video. It's really interesting. And like all of the, you know, it's, it's like generally just a good 40 minute video essay that, you know, from a guy who seems like he could actually make a movie, which is a big plus. Nice. Yeah, but You should drop that in my DMs uh, and I will, I will, I will uh, take a look at that. Um, but before we get uh, really uh, rocking and rolling down the conversational turnpike, um, let's talk about a thing we're into this week. Shall we? Does anybody have one? Not the Jersey Turnpike, tell you that. <clears throat> That's fair. Uh, don't worry. I have one. Okay, go ahead. Uh, the thing know. I'm... 
the thing I'm into this week is uh, puzzle solving videos on YouTube. Um, I have fallen into a hole recently of uh, watching videos of people solving like incredibly elaborate like bespoke like escape room puzzles okay um on on youtube specifically is one guy named mr puzzle who sounds like a like super villain with a german accent um who j- who just solves puzzles or this dude chris ramsey who's like a kind of annoying tattooed bro but uh People will make him like twenty thousand dollar bespoke, uh, like escape room puzzles that are super fun to watch. Um, I also am like just really bad at at puzzles in general, at that sort of like lateral thinking, and like you know, I I never I didn't solve Mist until I was thirty two years old. <laughs> That's fair. Um, I mean, I would like to point out though, this is the second week in a row that your thing you're into is just watching YouTube videos. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But this is YouTube videos about puzzles as opposed to YouTube videos about the film Tenet, but not the film Tenet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had to make that distinction for about a few minutes last week of Tenet was fine, but the world and science of Tenet are great. I want to watch YouTube videos about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's it's just like it kind of scratches that same itch of like watching someone like make something on YouTube or like, you know, like a sushi cut video of just someone doing something that is, that is a skill that I do not necessarily have. That's fair. That is, uh, interesting to, to watch, uh, cause I think puzzles are cool, uh, but it would stress me out too much to probably try to try to do them. See, I'm very much a puzzle person. We've talked about this, where I'm really bad at, like, platformer video games, but, like, give me a puzzle game any day. Remember when you used to play Portal, and I couldn't watch you play, but you would ask me to help you solve the puzzles if you couldn't figure it out? Yep. Yeah. Th- yeah, basically any time that there's, like, some sort of deep puzzle solving, I will just hand the controller I solved some uh, of the, um, the shrines in Zelda for you, too. You did, yeah. You, you got a couple of those, um... But we also solve problems very, very differently. Yeah, our brains just work differently. Uh, which is, like, why we shouldn't play, like, Overcooked. Yeah, we can't. We tried playing Overcooked together, and I was like, well, this will end our relationship. Yep. See, that appears to be that, like, there's, like, a particular kind of barometer is, like, a certain dynamic in a relationship. Uh, is that you're either, you're either you and your partner or you and your best friend are going to be, like, absolute wizards at overcooked or we're going to be like we can never do this um i had um my wife and i are pretty good with overcooked uh we uh last year we went to go visit uh my my sister and her husband and played overcooked and it seemed like uh my wife and i were in the category of like oh we rocket this we can do this and uh my and i think my sister and brother-in-law were more like other thing found it more frustrating and it's like well we're both terrific couples so it's just a matter of it's just a matter of like uh what is what is your is this part of your is this compatible with your love language uh this video game about uh yeah it just stopping things. i guess yeah it just it had to do with just like yeah brandon and i can't play overcooked together because um i will murder him but like yep. conversely you were like oh yeah like it's just different people in your life my best friend and i literally run a bakery together we could probably play overcooked 
Oh yeah, yeah, y'all would y'all would crush it over cooked. At worst, you'd have that problem where like a real band trying to play rock band and having difficulty because the actual thing that you do in the game is contrary to what your instincts would be using your real tools. That's fair. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, basically. I'm bad at rock band. I'm so bad at rock band. There's an old Colbert clip where he did that with Rush and like they were backstage and, and somebody set up a rock band for them and they just got their asses kicked trying to play <laughs> Tom Sawyer. We actually we used to we used to have a friend in college uh, who was actually previously on the show, uh, Dan Spencer, who uh, was on our uh, SpongeBob episode. And he, we would go over to his um, his apartment and play rock band with his roommate, uh, Andrew, who has also been on the show. He was actually just on our uh, Christmas Twitch. And uh, he would be in his room all the time because he was a um, visual arts major. So he was just like always working, always working, always working unless we played Rushes the Trees. And then suddenly he would appear out of his room and be like, is this the trees? (laughs) Every (laughs) single time. That was how we would lure Dan out of his room by playing Rush on Rock Band. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, uh, Beth, what about you? What are you into this week? I am into that I have actually just for the first time started it's always watching it's always sunny in philadelphia which is a show that you were surprised i got into and i think everybody else thought i would be really into but i just i don't know i just i never watched it when it was on when it started um because it was like 2005 or 6 and i was in high school uh and I just never got into it later. Like I'd seen a couple episodes in passing, but something about it this time you were watching like one episode randomly. And I was like, you know what? This is working for me this time. And so I went back and I started it from the beginning and I've been watching through it. Uh, I had to take a little break from it because I watched a lot of them in a row. I think I'm up to like season six. Although after this, the seasons are really, I think the longest one's like 11 episodes. They're not long. Didn't it, I thought it peaked at like 15 it's just they're not they're not long seasons um but i am very much enjoying it uh i am a big fan of uh the comedy stylings of them and uh yeah i don't know i like charlie a lot which um i joked was because i'm into sociopaths and my best friend joked it's because i'm into idiots so there you go (laughs) which explains why you married me uh that's all i got that's all i got dylan are you into anything this week Yeah, uh, so I recently uh, fractured my shoulder really bad about a month ago. And so for the last month or so, I've missed a lot of work. And there was a long period of time between the injury and my surgery and then between my surgery and going back to work where I really couldn't do anything except for watch TV, which I love TV and I love movies. I watched like 40 movies in that period of time. But uh, I also was going kind of crazy because I'm a workaholic and I couldn't really do any work. Uh, So I decided to take on uh, a viewing experience that was kind of kind of feel like work and that was to finally watch all of babylon 5 oh damn babylon 5 for those of you who do not know is a uh, science fiction uh space opera that was like syndicated and then on cable later um that sort of was one of the more successful shows to come out of the like star trek inspired boom for like cheap science fiction shows uh or like not that cheap but you know like you know what i mean like uh yeah stargate sg1 uh sequest fucking we're all about i've talked many times on this show how into stargate i am (laughs) so babylon 5 uh it's five seasons it's almost entirely written by 
comic book writer J. Michael Straczynski. Uh, and it, it's like, it is like super ambitious in a storytelling sense in that he plotted out five years of a show and like mm-hmm. more or less executed it as planned. Like it's a show that has like, for, that has a stable time, like jumping back and forth through time timeline that works throughout like 120 episodes, which is amazing. Oh yeah. Of, of all of those shows that you're talking about, it's definitely, it's notable for, never feeling like this is some sci-fi bullshit that they wrote on the fly because they wrote themselves into a corner it is so tightly plotted it knows what that show knows what it is from episode one which is so rare for one of those sci-fi shows but it's also like it's also like got all of like the worst parts of 90s star trek where like the acting is like off the wall and it kind of looks like shit and they invested in CGI way too early and all the space effects are done in CGI, but like they don't look good yet until like season four or five. And so it really doesn't hold up visually at all. Um, and so it's, so it's like, I'm impressed and I'm invested, but it also have a really hard time like recommending it to anybody. Yeah, sure. I'm going to get through it though. Was <laughs> that the one that had the, the Henson, uh, that's Farscape. Oh, that's Farscape. Yeah. Okay. On Farscape, you kind of don't mind as much that it's janky because it's got Muppets involved, and that creates a level of charm where they, where like they know, they know it's silly, so it's fine. Oh yeah, they could have put a couple of those SNL Muppets in there, and no one would have noticed. That's like I saw a a post yesterday that somebody made about like their unified theory of um that if if the Mandalorian had done um Grogu as CGI, it wouldn't have been nearly as endearing or successful. That real Muppets are always like charming always charming and they will like and that a cgi character is never going to be as effective like ever i totally agree oh totally i mean even just looking at yoda he's not nearly as effective in the the prequels when he's uh, a little computer guy no it relies on you having already fallen in love with him as a muppet in order for you to really invest in cgi yoda right and i i appreciate that like uh, I, I don't know if you guys have watched like the behind the scenes, like Disney gallery or whatever series about the making of the Mandalorian. And like they go into the process. Oh, of, like, he sure did. The... Oh man. It's, it is, they, the, the, the whole process of like cre- creating and operating the baby Yoda is like, of course it works. Like you've got like, I don't know. There's, there's something about having the physical prop. I mean, it feels even kind of gross to say a prop because you think of him as a person, right? Yeah. And the cleverness by, with, with when they use CGI and that when they use CGI, they kind of try to make it look like a puppet. And the principle that like, if we try to make it look real, people will realize it doesn't look real. But if it looks like a puppet, and then we always try to make sure it looks like a puppet, people will forget or be used to the fact that it's a puppet. And, yeah. you know, we now have half a century as evidence that people will absolutely fall in love with a puppet, even if it doesn't resemble real life at all. Like, there's nothing realistic about any of the Muppets cast. You're not supposed to confuse any of them with real frogs and birds and pigs. Mm-hmm. You just love them. I would die for yeah. Kermit. Someday I will. Oh, same. Yeah, yeah. You, you you will be asked to kill for Kermit, and you will. <laughs> there, there was uh, one of the things that Favreau said, I think, in one of those... Uh, Star Wars gallery things was that even when they did wind up having to use some CG for uh for Baby Yoda, they still did it so it couldn't do anything more than the actual puppet could, 
which I think also helps that, that there's not this like divide between, oh, it's a puppet when he's just kind of hanging out, but it's CG when he's doing like actiony things. Yeah, that avoids the problem that you actually do end up with occasionally in like a Muppet movie, like where suddenly you see where suddenly you like see Kermit like skating on one foot uh, across like the frozen pond and Muppet Christmas Carol. And you're like that there's a separation for me between that and Kermit because well, it's always weird when you see Kermit walking or using his legs, like when he rides the bike in um, <laughs> yes, the that's true. and you're just like, this is so, I know this is a puppet, but it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You'd almost prefer in times like that to just, just let, let's just let us see the operator because we're not going to pay attention to him anyway, because as Kermit would say, uh, no one really uh, is interested in what the bearded man is doing. Yeah. Yeah. We we just watched a. Uh, there's this ins- it's <laughs> yeah. my favorite. There joke, is my this favorite joke of any Muppet thing ever of all time. Is that's not mm-hmm. a bear. Bears wear hats. <laughs> <laughs> and it's in Muppet Caper, arguably not one of the better ones. No, uh, the only one where Charles Gordon is actively trying to uh, fuck, fuck Miss Piggy, Piggy for the, the entire movie. running time. Yeah. That one also uh, scores high on the. Uh, they did a Star Trek scale because it's got Gates McFadden. <laughs> Where who's Gates McFadden in that? Ah, uh, I don't remember the name of the character, but Beth, you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, That's that one, right? I can't remember the name either. Hold on. Now it's been I a long time since I've seen that one. I know, but uh, I have this habit um, now, uh, especially since like I've been watching a lot of like a uh, Twitch stream. Like, yeah, I think uh, she's the, the like mobster's girlfriend, maybe. Yeah, I think that's oh, it. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Nowadays, when watching movies with uh with friends on like Twitch and Discord, you know, throughout quarantine, it's become like a like a mini game attached that people have to play with me whether they want to or not. Where I will point out without looking it up as best as possible every person in every movie that we watch that's ever done a Star Trek, and. uh Usually, it's not so easy as a main cast member from an episode of from from, the, from one of the series is in the show. Usually, it's like, ah, oh, yes, Clifton Ca- Clifton Collins Jr. actually appeared under makeup in this film, or you know, Ed Begley Jr. played a uh, did a to a two episode guest role on Voyager in 1996, and blah blah blah. Oh no, we're wrong. She's in Muppets Take Manhattan as Martin Price's secretary. I blew it. Oh, oh, right! In that, in that, that scene where Kermit's really coked out at the agent's office. Yeah, yeah. Right. Here I go bragging about my ability to say they did a Star Trek, <laughs> and I fucked right. it up. I have to let a cat. Yeah, I was gonna say I have to let a cat out of the bedroom. But let's start talking about Bruce Springsteen. So, Dylan, how did you how did you get into uh, uh, Bruce? Well, it was almost impossible for me not to get into Bruce Springsteen. Um, so, uh, I grew up, I was raised by, uh, parents who have run a record store in New Jersey since 1979 called Vintage Vinyl Records. Um, I definitely bought some stuff online from your parents. Right on. Uh, we we always have like the, the, the fish record store day shit. Um, oh yeah. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I got, uh, Paige McConnell's record store day solo album like eight years ago. Well, sweet. Well, thank you for your Via phone order from your parents. Uh, my father has seen Bruce Springsteen in concert 232 times. Damn! Uh, and uh, my that. mother, I think, would be probably somewhere in the in the in in like the 30 or 40 area. I myself have seen Bruce, I think, eight or nine times. So, you know, I'm hey, a lightweight. He does a good show. 
He has a great yeah. show, right? Uh, and and especially since even now he doesn't play like to do two sets that are the same. Yeah, uh, I mean, getting to more of that, but like it's so. My father is like a a early adopter, first wave Bruce Springsteen fan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sure, there from the beginning, and uh, I grew up with the music of Bruce Springsteen playing a lot like we had a variety of music that we listened to and my, my father has like this enormous record and cd collection from you know being a record store owner for mm-hmm. most of his life but uh it always comes back to bruce play bruce a lot and bruce became in new jersey when you grew up in jersey in, in my generation i was born in 1989 right so way you know past the peak of pop culture saturation for for bruce uh you I either... think been the peak of pop culture what's that i thought you just meant the peak of pop culture <laughs> um uh, for for people my age, and I think probably in, in New Jersey in general, you you either you either love Bruce Springsteen or you hate Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of people who are totally in New Jersey, at least among like I guess like white people who are like totally indifferent to Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. You are either like this is like oh he's our guy, he's just like this is what New Jersey music is, or it's like I'm so fucking sick of hearing about this guy. Shut the fuck up about Bruce Springsteen. I want to listen to you know any number of other good artists from New Jersey, and. Yeah. See, I grew up in Connecticut, which, like, as part of the tri-state area, you got, like, some bleed of that. Like, some people were really into it, and some people were just like, it's a Jersey thing. I don't care. (laughs) I think Connecticut is being Billy Joel territory. Mm. Oh, for Mm. sure, too. Yeah. Explains why I don't like Connecticut. Jersey Jersey gets a little (laughs) bit of Billy Joel saturation as well, but he's he's long. He's a Long Islander, right? Yeah. it's yeah. It's more well, like I just stuck uh, between the two of them, <laughs> much yeah. like we're stuck between the Red Sox and the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We got uh, uh, there's a lot of Bruce heads in 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 uh, in in the Philly area too. So it's, but uh, but so I became a Springsteen fan really really young, and I remained a Bruce Springsteen fan my entire life. I never really had like a phase in my in my life where I was just totally off Springsteen. Certainly, he's put out albums during my life that I have been like cold on. But he's also continued to put out stuff that I like, um, at least every other record. You know, there's something that I get really into. I've learned a lot of Bruce songs and played a lot of Bruce songs uh, in my musical career. And he would, I would be, it'd be impossible to deny that he's not the like number one influence on my own songwriting, either directly or through the songwriters, the more contemporary songwriters that I emulate that are also Bruce derived. Sure. Who, uh, who are who are some of the uh, more contemporary uh, uh, Bruce esque people that have influenced you? The most specifically like disciple of Bruce Springsteen artists that I got really into in like my sort of like college singer songwriter days would be like Brian Fallon from the Gaslight Anthem or the Hold Steady. Uh, I think there's a lot of Bruce DNA in the Menzingers, even though they're like more of like a punk post emo band. Uh, those are bands I get really into that are I think really Brucey. There's certain things like, like the the Hold Steady. They're from Minneapolis by, but but then made it you know kind of became a big deal in Brooklyn, right? But there's a ton yeah. of Bruce and Paul Westerberg in their DNA. Uh, oh, totally. There's that when when they dropped Constructive Summer, I was like, shit, did they just get the E Street Band from 1977 <laughs> to oh, to yeah. to play on this track? Because goddamn. And uh, the Gaslight Anthem, Brian Fallon, I think actually even got kind of exhausted of the Bruce Association because. He's really, I think, really more of a Tom Petty guy by a hair. Like, he he loves... And Brian Fallon used to occasionally shop in the store, and he uh, buys exactly what you think that he would buy when you listen to the Gaslight Anthem, which is Bruce, Tom <laughs> Petty, Tom Waits, and, like, Otis Redding. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, sounds about right. And so I think uh, there's certain there's a certain kind of vibe that's difficult to specifically define that's like, oh, this is a Jersey band that even like sort of across across subgenres of rock that you can detect. Uh, that even I, who if I kind of studied it pretty closely, I I couldn't describe it to you other than I absolutely know it when I hear it. Like yeah. there are there are things about the killers that are extremely Jersey because Brandon Flowers is you can is a big Bruce head. Uh and there are some Jimmy Eat World songs. Those guys are from Arizona, but the big casino is like texturally a New Jersey song. That's yeah. that is it's in the I lyrics. Can see that, yeah. Yeah. And I the way that the best way I've been able to describe New Jersey music is I'm unhappy, but I'm doing something about it. Yeah. Yep. I get a lot of um Yep. And I don't I don't think they're from that huh. Let me look something up before I I'm making sure I know what I'm talking about here. Uh, North Carolina music fine. is more like, hey, here's some banjos and let's not really think about the like race parts of this. <laughs> of this heritage. Yeah, okay, no, I'm not wrong. I was gonna say, I was like, I, even though they're a like distinctly California band, I have always um the Counting Crows, the guy who writes most of their songs, Adam Duritz. Oh, yes. He like has like such that kind of like rich deep like referential texture to his lyrics that i find so appealing about a lot of springsteen songs as well like they're a berkeley band but like i can feel the like dna of that kind of thing in their music oh man beth you have no idea how much you're speaking to me currently uh (laughs) i am also uh august and everything after is a top five desert island album for me and adam duritz is one of my other biggest influences as a songwriter and maybe my single biggest influence in terms of how my vocal delivery has become in my solo work i don't know like i i pick up certain you know how like most i think i think it's true of like most singers is that you don't sing with necessarily the same accent or affect with which you speak and some people put it on really hard like like joey ramone or jesse mallon or randy newman right yeah but um randy newman talks like that too though he he does not it's crazy (laughs) um but it's uh, Adam Duritz has like a certain thing like he 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 has a certain way that he forms his R's that are not how I form my R's when I speak but it's 100% how I do when I sing mm-hmm. it's just certain stuff that I absorbed because I think when August and everything ever, everything after came out it was I was old enough to create memories but young enough that I wasn't going to school and my mother would put that album on every single day for what in my mind was a year but it was probably like a couple of months because you know you don't really experience time the same way when you're like three or four years old yeah uh and i think that or now yeah that permanently like became part of my musical dna and i do think that it's very brucey and he and i think that adam dirts would agree like there's that live album where they they actually used to do um thunder road in the middle of rain king live oh i've never heard that i'm gonna have to go look that up immediately now (laughs) you can probably find it on youtube because there's like a live live album slash doc slash um like like concert film they did the live album is on i think it's on spotify actually the live album i just haven't yeah, really so listened to it check it out because i think uh if, i think there's like probably like a 12 minute version of rain king in there and it's got the entirety of, of thunder road in the middle nice. if, I, if i recall correctly our speaking of uh speaking of live um because the e street band is you know, fish is my favorite band there's no there's no question about that but the e street band 
is probably the best band on the planet. Uh, just in terms of like sheer musicianship and like you know skinny that, that piratude, skinny jeans, skinny jeans piratude. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that that band is just so simultaneously tight, but also there's a looseness to them that is really fun to watch when uh when when Bruce is like really kind of feeling it mm-hmm. um and like uh one of the tours we saw them on they they would they basically just started playing stump the band uh and Bruce would just take stacks of song request signs from the audience and then would just kind of uh that was at Bonnaroo he did they did that at Bonnaroo and they did it uh when we saw uh, the river as well. Oh yeah, we we saw we've seen we have both seen Bruce Springsteen three times. We were very fortunate. We saw them before um, Clarence died, uh, which is great. Um, including, I suppose we we're going to have to on this episode tell the story of our first date um, was a Bruce Springsteen concert. Uh, yes, <laughs> but yeah, he did at Bonnaroo. He took a bunch of signs from the audience, and one of them was Santa was was for some reason a huge sa- like cutout of Santa Claus. And so, in the middle of Bonnaroo, in like a hundred and one degrees, they played Santa Claus is coming to town. <laughs> yeah, and like it was it was like a full size like Santa cutout minus the head, and he just sort of held it up. And w- said, it's too fucking hot for Santa. It's too fucking hot for Santa. And as he was saying that, uh, the band started the uh, Santa Claus is coming to town <laughs> uh, riff. And, and he was like, all right, it's 235 days to Christmas. Are you being good? <laughs> and it was so, it was just one of those like, one of those like truly live moments that like no one on stage had planned to play Santa Claus is coming to town just through that weird alchemy of this was the sign that Bruce grabbed and you know it it struck his fancy um and and just that the band is able to do that because it's not always their songs like they'll do that with covers like it's fucking wild I was going to say, speaking of the band, though, it is worth noting that that particular show we're talking about was the tour that Max's son was drumming because Max was on tour with Conan. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. For, like, I think the back half of that show. Yeah, Max was there for the first half, but, uh, at, like, halfway through, uh, he swapped in his son who just, like... Killed it. Absolutely killed yeah, it. Yeah, who brought the fucking thunder. He's great. I think I saw him play once. He's, he's also fantastic. And it's the kind of thing where, like, the, the E Street Band because of their whole thing, because their whole, like, family vibe, um, gets a pass for me. Watching a bunch of best friends fucking jam. It does. That's that's, that's part of the magic of their performance, right? Because they have, for a long time, er, earlier when I was, like, first in, like, the band that I was in with two of the Hell Yeah Babies before we became the Hell Yeah Babies, when that band started, I was such a snob about, um, against, like, certain showy stagecraft stuff like i was like we don't need to have matching outfits and we don't need to do these dance moves and we don't have to do all this shit because if we're like really competent musicians and we're really just having good time on stage we don't need to do any of this showy shit like like you sound like me (laughs) like the e street band doesn't do that and like i'm completely blind to the fact that yes they do that's just the show like the fact that they are like 
best that they have this vibe that they are this huge expanding family that is like a bunch of traveling vagabonds and they're like jeans and t-shirts and bandanas and weird hats like that is those are costumes and they're playing characters and there's an honesty to them it's more like a wrestling persona than like a theater character but like they are doing this for you it is part of the performance that they are like a crew of a fucking pirate ship that's like having the best time mm-hmm. and you're there and incidentally you're having a great time and they're going to help you have a great time but you couldn't not because of what a great time they're having that's part of the show right and like oh, yeah. the idea that they're ready for everything they're prepared for everything like yeah they're one of the hardest drilling bands in the world it's just their job to make it look like they're like fucking Effortless. just making it up as they go yeah yeah and like that's part of the joy of it and that's part of what makes me so impressed. It, it, like, the E Street Band is the best, is I think the greatest American band, mm-hmm. like of all time. Yeah, easy. Um, I, I whenever people have that argument, I'm like, and people are like Aer- Aerosmith, fucking Aerosmith, name me ten good Aerosmith what? songs. Yeah, and, and Aerosmith also aren't a machine. It's also live. it's yeah. also true though that like Bruce Springsteen himself gets so much of the credit. And and that also kind of speaks to how good they are, that they aren't, not that they're not talked to, I don't know, like, I'm trying to figure out the best way to phrase this, that, like, they, that they're, they're not showing, they don't take over the performance, that the E Street, Bruce Springsteen is, you cannot talk about him in any serious way without discussing how important the E Street band is. However, in the larger, larger cultural zeitgeist, especially people who only became aware of him in later years when he was really just doing solo stuff, like they think of him as this like monolithic artist and he's not. <laughs> no, we've seen him with and without. Yeah. There's a reason why his band fans refer to the band he he recorded and toured uh, Human Touch and Lucky Town with as the Bogus Band, yeah. and why they didn't last. And like I understand, like you know, having from his friends biography, his autobiography and stuff. Like the idea was an experiment of being like, well, I want to play with new people because that'll help me to grow and try new things. Yeah, yeah. But it's not it's not as good. Yeah. And like I love a lot of his solo acoustic folk stuff, and I think the Sessions Band was interesting. And these are all cool experiments, but at the end of the day like the the e street band is such an irreplaceable part of who he is as an artist and what his music sounds like yeah that like i think that i believe they've been inducted separately into they the have. hall of fame mm-hmm. i was yeah. i was about to bring that up the fact that like that bruce bruce's songwriting and the e street band like show are two sort of separate things that there is a Venn diagram uh, overlap. And like the middle of that is a fucking Springsteen show. Um, But like, yeah, it's so wild that, that he's been inducted on his own. And then that the band was inducted separately and, and later, because technically the first E street record wasn't until like his second or third, I think Uh, all the people on, uh, Greetings from Asbury Park are just like his other buddies at the time. Yeah, there are people who who made it, you know, who who made it all the way on that record. Like Clarence is on that record. Uh, I think Gary Talent's on that record playing bass. Gary Talent fucking rocks. Extremely underrated bassist. Um, but yeah, you, you got like David Sanchez on there. You got like um, 
uh, on the. And on there's the a meaning like Mad Dog on there. Yeah, Mad Dog Lopez on the drums. Uh, it's still like it's still like so the prototype version, right? And then sure. By the time you get to Born to Run, although the title track has Boom Carter on drums instead of Max Weinberg, for the rest of that record, it's basically like oh, that's that's version 1.0 of the E Street Band. And sure. most of them stay with the band until they die. Because, yeah. like, honestly, like, people have left and come back. Well, Steven left for a while and got replaced by... Well, uh, he was on Sopranos I, for a while. <laughs> but he also, like, before, he also had, he also had, like, his solo, his solo Disciples of Soul stuff that he was doing. Mm-hmm. And then they replaced him with Nils Lofgren. And, you know, Nils Lofgren's a totally different kind of player and, like, super fun and super cool. And then when Steven came back, they're like, well, we're not going to kick out Nils. we just get the band will just be bigger. And that's basically been the strategy for the band because there's there's no end to the amount of money they have to spend so they're just no. like why get rid of anybody we'll just uh we'll just keep making the band bigger like when clarence died they didn't just replace clarence i'm like well we lose a lot of energy just from the lack of clarence just we have jake clemens his nephew playing mm-hmm. uh and he's and he's good and he's probably on a technical level a much better player than clarence clemens because a lot of people are but he's not gonna kiss bruce in the mouth <laughs> yeah probably not no but yeah but, like, but well, the absence, well, we've seen it <laughs> it takes it takes six people to fill that space so they got six people and now there's like a big horn section in the band most of the time and you know they brought in Susie Tyrell because there's there's violin on the rising it's like well I guess we have a violinist now so she stays in the I band I love the rising yeah. uh, Patty Scalfa you know is a permanent member of the band so that Bruce can't cheat on her anymore so <laughs> as someone who does you know create music with her husband i'm such a sucker for like just having to have your spouse on stage and how funny that is and that dynamic <laughs> well i mean it's it is it is, they are cute right but yeah. it's yeah. also funny that it's like an insurance policy yeah because <laughs> sure. because patty knows what happens when he goes off on tour because she's what happened yeah. when he went off on tour yeah. so she's like it's like i think i'll stay i think i'll stick around and we'll tour together yeah uh, fleetwood mac <laughs> tried that to significantly less success <laughs> yeah. uh, and i don't know there's just they get a pass from me on nepotism the way that like almost no other entity will get uh, because they've made it part of their brand. Like, so the idea, like, what an amazing opportunity it is to get to fill in playing drums for the E Street Band, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a star-making vehicle for anybody, and part of me should be like, fuck you for just bringing in somebody's kid. That's bullshit. That's, you know, that's that's bringing in Jim Carrey to play the fucking, you know, Joe Biden on election week. That's 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 stupid. Or J.J. Abrams has his son write a, sp- his 20-year-old son write a Spider-Man book so he can make, like, you know, get his bones. That's bullshit, but unfortunately but uh fortunately every time they bring in uh, a nepotism case of the e street band they're fucking really good yeah they're really <laughs> so, good and it also it also like it doesn't feel that way sometimes like logically in your head because like we were talking about like they kind of feel like a family band so like it yeah. makes sense like yeah. yeah just keep it in the family <laughs> like I, I remember one of the first times i saw uh, the E Street Band in Charlotte when I was younger. And I believe it was the Rising Tour, uh, which was the first Springsteen album that I really got into because I think it was the first one that, like, had been released after I had, like, gotten into music. And, like, it's not his best record, but it has a it has a vibe to it that's not entirely 9-11-y. Um, but when they, when they, like, started the show, they just, like, brought the lights down and then the band all came out kind of like one by one and had their own little like 
you know, it almost felt like the beginning of a basketball team when it was like, ladies and gentlemen, your 2002 East Street band. <laughs> we we think it's like we did that bit. Like we like that. Like the Hell yeah Babies have done that bit. We actually recorded a um an a New York a other a, a Chicago built uh, a Chicago Bulls style intro thing for each <laughs> member of the band to come out. There's only four of us, right? Yeah. Um. But that shit is great because, like, that helps you to build the individual members of your band as characters. And, like, sure, they're not like Kiss where those characters have individual merchandise. You can't buy a Gary W. Talent action figure or a Professor Roy Bitten t-shirt. God, what if? The But you when you do that and you make everybody a – and you make all these individual players a character to the degree that they want to be, it helps to sell the mythology of the band. Like – one of like one of the centerpieces of most big East Street band shows is Tenth Avenue Freeze Out, the mytho- the mythological version of the forming of the band, which gives you a built-in window to introduce all these different players. And of course, it now is the living memorial to Clarence Clemens, right? But uh that is like the fact that I ever thought that because they didn't have lasers and fireworks on their shows meant that they were not working the audience as hard as any other band like would do it honestly it blows my mind because now like you know, having you know had some time as a performer and being able to sort of see the strings a little bit and be like and of course also he's he's written a book about it now where he talks about what like a what a what a carny he is right mm-hmm. uh sure the spe- the specific vision of this band and and the success of of it it comes from the idea of you're not just going to be in love with the main character here this is an ensemble piece in the way that like buffy's an ensemble mm-hmm. piece right yes yeah it's called buffy the vampire slayer and it's about her but she's may not even be your favorite character in fact for most people she's not right you love clarence clemens and you love little steven van zandt and you get excited when Danny Federici, you know, rest in peace, was going to do something. You're like, oh, it's Danny moment. Yeah. And like, it's- or just when it was just Max on the, you know, four on the floor. Yeah. While Bruce is doing a, you know, banter for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Max, Max Weinberg became, especially through the Conan thing, became such a, such like his own character. And none of them speak. It's just yeah. from the mythologizing. It's just point out this person, show off you're really good. Now, back into the, back into the choir, right? And it's, it's amazing to me how I can't name the members of most of the bands that I like unless I know them personally. And it's, but I, but there's been it's, like it's 25 Julian, people in the East. Sam, <laughs> uh, Mike Pfeiffer. Yeah, there have, there's been so many people in the, uh, and, and like, you know who they are. And like, I, you're right. Like, I don't think there's another band I could like name the members of that are not like the front man or or like i don't know if, if they are they're just they're this mythological they're like they are like the mythological band and you saying um about talking about in his autobiography he talks about being a carny um i think that too is one of the things that always appealed to me kind of connecting back to what i said about the the counting crows of that like I think that he's a really good storyteller, especially in the in the early albums with those. Like I was saying, my favorite my favorite album is the Wild, the Innocent, and the East Street Shuffle. 
the shortest song on that album is four minutes and 27 seconds. It is only a seven yeah. song album. Was that Wild Billy Circus Story? Yeah, Wild Billy Circus Story is on it. But there's like a lot of talk about carnivals on that one. But it, oh, yeah. Yeah, just, it's, it's all very much you feel like he is spinning you a story and, and telling you about this boardwalk community. And like you're getting a full picture of him as like as poet in in that whole album across the album across many of his albums they're yeah. so evocative and so much like so i like a storytelling story a, the storytelling song and and bruce springsteen is so strong at that and like the way he he's able to do that both on record and with his you know just with his songwriting and he's also able to do that um in a live setting which is a very different skill like he's able to work an arena of people the same way that like Freddie Mercury could. Yeah. Like, when, like, like when he was at Live Aid and doing that, like, you know, yo thing. Um, he, you're right. It's definitely like the sort of preacher energy, like, like with the music and with just the, like, if you just transcribed some of the shit that Bruce has said on stage, it's meaningless. Oh, and a lot like, of it's just like cheesy as hell. It's like oh yeah. absolute dad shit, especially in We're going to build a house made of love, yeah. and it's going to be doors made of friendship yeah, and like walls most, made of truth. The most unhinged fucking Howard Dean speech of all time, right? And it's like, I, but but there's, there's something about... As I, as I, I used to, when I was, I used to be, I used to front a band called Dylan Roth and the Duke Street Kings. Uh, back in Jersey, uh, Dylan Roth and what? And the Duke Street Kings, which of course is nice. a, a Bruce reference to uh, Backstreets. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to try to do shit like that. First of all, I do not have the charisma to do that. I think on any level, even even if I had the other prerequisites I'm about to mention. But what you need in order to break into like a long story segment in the middle of one of your songs where you try to really get the the audience to be quiet and like and like invest in like a 4 minute monologue before you get to the last chorus or before you kick off a song first of all you need complete control of your environment you got to be able to get to get the lights down you got to be able to like really make sure you're the only thing that someone can pay attention to in the room second you need to have the confidence of a sociopath mm-hmm. and <laughs> and third you need to already be Bruce Springsteen yeah, because if you're you can do that solo in a coffee house or you can do that with a huge band behind you in an arena. And I think that anywhere in between, it's fucking impossible. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it has the same energy as like a Greek poet. Like you have to be able to it almost, um, you know what energy like a, a, a live Bruce Springsteen monologue gives off to me in a way is like um fucking. Paul Bettany playing Chaucer in fucking Knight's Tale, just coming out and just taking a whole audience by just getting more and more and more hype. <laughs> like, <laughs> sure. Springsteen has such high energy. Does nobody remember when he teabagged America? Oh, I forgot about when he teabagged America. In the when he played the Super Bowl and he did a fucking like power slide across the stage and his crotch went straight into the camera. <laughs> Well, there's a thing where we're uh, in in his. I, I cannot recommend enough. If anybody does not have the time or inclination to read his entire book, the Springsteen Live on Broadway show is basically a condensed version of the book with music performances inside. Um, that is extremely powerful, at least for me as already a fan. If you've never listened to Bruce Springsteen before, I don't know how much it's going to compel you, but um, 
he talks so much in the book and in the performance about trying to capture like the simple essence of fun in everything that he does. And just like the idea that he's like the stupid, like the power, the, the power slide thing into the thing. It's like, it's kind of thing where like, he's, if David Lee Roth does that, it's cool, but it's also like kind of obnoxious, right? But that's his thing, right? And like, you know, Mike Pfeiffer from the Hell Yeah Babies, it's like that's that's his Bruce. He fucking loves David Lee Roth, and I have learned to like love and respect David Lee Roth, even though I used to like laugh at him as a rock and roll clown. At, Mike my, likes David Lee Roth. I never would have guessed <laughs> through my evolution as a person who actually understands the craft of performance and isn't just like a snob who thinks we should wear flannel. Um, flannel. Um, I... Can you imagine it? <laughs> Hell yeah, babies in flannel. It would be the end of us. Civilian uh, clothes. Is that, is that like I David, never? David Lee Roth's character is to do shit like that about look how cool I am. Bruce Springsteen's character is to do that, being like, wouldn't you do that if you were here? You absolutely would. I'll do it for you. Yeah. Um, and look how fun this is. Jimmy Buffett kind of <laughs> has that same vibe with his live shows of like, see, I'm, 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 I'm just doing what anybody else would, you know, we're going to, we're going to play hot, hot, hot. We're going to do, you know, all the shit that you'd want Jimmy Buffett to do. Cause that's what you'd do if you were Jimmy Buffett. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Um, the, the, uh, the Broadway show, I, I wasn't really able to, I had a hard time getting into it. I, I've watched probably two thirds of it, but for some reason, I think the thing you were saying about when you like you could do the same thing in a coffee house or you could do the same thing in an arena, I think for whatever reason, at least for me, removing the E Street Band, but really just removing the like raucous energy of 20,000 people in an arena as opposed to 800 in a small Broadway theater where everyone is being like church quiet and like it. I don't know. It, I I felt like a lot of his like monologuing and stuff and that came off a little goofy, but I think that's just kind of his voice and like without the sort of, you know, jet engine of the E Street band or the sort of inherent like when you get that many people into an arena, things just kind of happen that like it put way more of a focus on just hit him as like a speaker which I, I don't th- which I, I don't know it, the whole it rang a little silly to me at points in ways I, I felt like it it wasn't supposed to. But also when I was watching it on Netflix, I could tell, oh, being in the room, this is probably much more powerful. I think it you is know? kind of like E Street Band show like, and like Bruce was raised Catholic. Right. But an E Street Band show is like fucking like is church is, is like is like good Baptist. Right. It's like, oh, yeah. it's like, uh, oh, he's, he cribs a, a ton from like gospel derived soul and like is guilty of a lot of cultural appropriation, but he always gives credit. Um, uh, that's true. Uh, but he's, Jimmy Buffett's the same way, actually. Yeah. Uh, but the, the acoustic Bruce thing is way more like being in the kind of church where Bruce grew up, where it is about like a kind of a quiet reverence and contemplation. And so not both vibes are not for everybody, right? There are there are people who love the E Street band for who the solo stuff, the solo show, they would never go to that, and vice versa, right? And and that's fine, right? I, I'm I'm personally I personally like both. I prefer the E Street stuff, but I can get really into the live on Broadway show 
uh, I regret deeply passing up an opportunity to go to see him on the Sessions tour when he was there with the Secret oh, Sessions band. So I was invited. I wasn't nuts about the record. Uh, and I was like seven. I was like 16 or 17. I was not the target audience for that. Uh, that was the first Springsteen record I really got deep into. That sounds right for you. I didn't, I didn't appreciate it at the time. And then when they put out the live uh, DVD from that tour and I saw how wild and fun it was. Oh, yeah. I was like, I am a fucking idiot that I did not go to this. And my dad is like sitting watching with him. He's like, he's like, yeah, you are. You blew it. He'll never do this again. Like, Fuck. <laughs> he never will do it again. The like ska version of Atlantic City on that. Oh, so fucking good! So and like, good. open all night, completely transformed into a oh, song open all that night just whips ass. Whips. So good. <sighs> and like, the sessions band even still does have that same kind of like, like sort of raucous. Like, there's just so many of us on stage. Yeah, it is. It is the most carny he's ever been. Yeah, I love the energy of a sessions band. The sessions band in the same way that I love like a Dropkick Murphy show. Oh yeah. Like it's got that same like Irish energy in a way. There's a moment on the the Seeger Sessions record, which like if you've ever watched how they recorded that, they basically just like crammed everybody into Bruce's living room and then put the horn section in the stairwell. Yeah. Um and like they would they would wouldn't even really like run through the songs. They'd just kinda like work out what the arrangement was. And then Bruce will just audibly call, you know, saxophone. Or whatever for uh, whoever's supposed to take a solo. But there's one track on there. I don't remember which one where Bruce says something that is so nonspecific. Like he basically goes like, and like he's clearly meant to signal someone, but you can tell that no one in the band actually knew who he meant. (laughs) So for the next like six beats, there's just this like, nobody really steps up and there's just sort of this like, uh, are you gonna, are you gonna and then eventually like, I think the accordion guy jumps in and, and starts doing a solo, but it's it's just so funny that you that there's this caught moment of like, how loose and improvisational it was and, it, and that vibe definitely transfers to uh, to their live show in a similar but very different way than than E Street does, and I think that's just a testament to the man knows how to put a fucking band together. Sure does. And it it also had that kind of family band feeling. Yeah, and even though it was like, it's more like that one felt like like a distant family reunion, you know, where like totally. instead of people who are really familiar with each other, it's like, oh, we're gonna bring in the 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 fucking Illinois Springsteens and the Nebraska yeah. Springsteens, right? Yeah, the 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 cousins all showed up. And it's uh, I don't know, it's just a unique thing, and and it's something that I that I like about Bruce, where I I, I see artists even only a little bit older than me or my age struggling with this, and I'm surely going to struggle with it as as much as as much as I, I don't want to, but there's so many people who put out great albums in their 20s or in their 30s, and then just keep making watered down versions of those albums for the rest of their careers, uh. And it bums me out. For one thing, it bums me out as an artist where I'm afraid I'm looking at my future. Where like I'm like, I need to keep listening to new and different music. I can't come back to vintage vinyl and buy Tom Waits, Tom Petty, and Bruce Springsteen and Otis Redding uh, after I've cut my fourth record inspired by those bands. I I need to be listening to what's happening now. Even if I don't want to sound like it, I got to learn from it. I have to grow. I have to try new things, right? Um. 
the Ur example of not doing that is like Elvis Costello, who has recorded an album in like every genre of music there is at this point. He hasn't done an electronic album yet, uh, but he has a hip hop album and he has an opera record. Don't give him any ideas. Yeah. Um, but like Bruce has found a way to find, to continue to gradually and deliberately refine and change and alter his sound in ways that they are distinctive. Yeah, he's certainly evolved. And you know what? Not every album is, you know, the straight banger from start to finish, but you can see the DNA of the evolution. Oh, totally. And even his, like, lesser records still have at least one or two moments where you're like, oh, shit, yeah, this whips. Like, we first saw him on the Magic Tour, which was, like, a fine album. Doesn't do a lot for me. But, like, Radio Nowhere is a rad song. It was still an amazing performance to watch. Living in the Future from Magic is is a big favorite for me. And it's all, he, he keeps stepping into this particular problem that he steps into where he writes a song that's supposed to be like a warning or like sort of like a, a specific like dark political statement, but the song is too fun and nobody gets it. <laughs> uh, and he had to start prefacing on Living in the Future. He, you know, he, it famously happened with him in Born in the USA. Uh, and then in, uh, on that record, he had uh, he had Living in the Future. And he's like, hey, this song's about a surveillance state and we already have it. One, two, three, four. Um <laughs> It's not it's not actually it's not actually the future. It only sounds like the future. We're actually living in it right now, and here we go. Uh, blow, big man, blow. Yeah. Uh and then it's like this really super fun song with like this really great like sax solo and organ solo in it that he's loved to death. Um and I think that's ultimately what led him to something to an album like uh like Wrecking Ball, which is just almost wall to wall fucking angry. Yeah. Uh I yeah, really like that, that really record. Is. But that also has We Take Care of Our Own, where he had to change some of the lyrics live because he did he did it again. He's like Oh, this is about how we're supposed to take care of our own, but we don't. Uh, we don't, though. We currently don't. Uh, <laughs> and um, and so, it's like, like, this is not a parable. This is true. <laughs> yeah. So the um, you know, there's there's the the bridge where he's like, where's the promise? Uh, where's the promise? Wherever this flag is flown, he had to change it to. He had to specifically say that wherever this flag is flown, that wherever this flag is flown, that he like hit the head started hitting that extremely hard. As if, as if that was gonna pivot for enough people to be like, oh, he's not saying that this is what happens. It's the promise that X that doesn't happen, and he keeps, he keeps stepping in it over and over again. <laughs> that he's just, he just that's the problem where he wants to have such a good time and he wants everybody to have a good time, and he doesn't have that kind of weird sarcastic voice or sardonic audience like they might be giants gonna have where they do that all the time, and their songs always have like a dissonance between musical tone and like message but bruce's audience is much wider and much drunker and like it can't <laughs> you can't count on us all catching that subtlety some of us are just here to some some people are still wearing the fucking bandana and it's like well i don't think you get it but i hope you have fun and you know i think that's part of what the magic of of bruce's show is is that for as much as like his stuff can be very political and very very serious and very personal he makes the show the biggest tent possible like he's he's not out there wanting to be you know exclusionary or or like i only want you know uptight leftists to come to my show so we can like be arch you know it's like i want everybody to have a good time when the e street band rolls into town which which is which is admirable even if it doesn't always work the way it should yeah. There's, I think, one of the quintessential like Bruce statement songs to me is "American Skin," forty-one shots, 
And mm-hmm. part of that has to do with how it was received as well. Because my realization the last couple of years is that Bruce Springsteen is basically Captain America, the character, like for better <laughs> and for worse. Oh, shit. Uh, he represents or tries to represent the America that we pretend to be and pretend to to treasure and honor when it while acknowledging that it doesn't exist. Yeah. And 41 Shots is a song that he wrote after the death, after the police killing of Amadou Diallo. Uh, and it is extremely specific. It is the first verse is from the perspective of the cop. And the second verse is a perspective of a black parent getting getting her child ready for school. I think I might have it backwards. The The point is that it tries to take every angle of it sympathetically. And the typical thing that just absolutely shows you how, how useless that is, is that the NYPD boycotted him over it. Yep. Ugh, of course um, is that he's trying to be like, this is a really tragic thing that happened. And it's horrible that it happened. This is what it likely. This is this is the best version I can, most sympathetic version I can imagine of what it felt like to be one of the cops who shot him. This is how terrified parents are when things like this happen. This is how we're all failing each other when this, you know, with an emphasis, I think, more on you know police failing people. But like this is this is why we can't let this happen and why it's such a tragedy. And the response from the from the and the dip, and the response from the NYPD when he did this sort of thing, being like, "Hey, let's all try to empathize with each other," is "Fuck you, uh, we're if you better hope nobody tries to shoot you while you're in Madison Square Garden because none of us is going to help you." Yeah, we're going to go listen to Billy Joel now. Yeah, it's uh, but he's always trying to bridge that gap, right? He's always trying. It's never, it's never going to work, but. Captain America would always try. It's nice, though, to have that kind of energy from a white man of his age, because, you know, we're out here living in a world where fucking Clapton and whoever the fuck just wrote an anti-masker song. Ugh, Van Morrison. And there's all those dudes of, like, a similar generation that tend to want to only go back to when everything was about them. And Bruce Springsteen's never been that guy, even though he's of a generation that could easily fall into that pitfall. Yeah, Bruce has always been legitimately like, like pretty far, pretty far as far left as you can be while being as rich as he is, right? So clearly not that far. But like he doesn't, he doesn't get involved in Democratic primaries. Like he didn't get behind like Bernie or anything during the primary. He always ends up backing whoever is wins the nomination and campaigns for them. Uh, so he's not. He he talks a lot of good game. Like, we're, Wrecking Ball is an album about wanting to fucking kill and eat Wall Street, right? Like, that is, that is, and it's not subtle. I mean, why else do you bring Tom Morello on board? <laughs> yeah, he has the Tom Morello endorsement, and again, he, like, he's, he's made his money, right? Uh, but he, but he also walks the walk pretty good. Um, oh, yeah. And, but, but he does, he does still sort of, there's that kind of line where he won't cross, where he doesn't want, he doesn't want to totally alienate his center or right fans. I think he values them. And I think he legitimately does beyond the dollar sign. I think that he is, he is that guy, or at least the character that he presents that feels pretty genuine and that he's presented as also part of his real self through his memoirs, where he kind of, he kind of pulls back the curtain. I I kind of have to think that that book is still sort of to a degree. There's still probably a layer of kayfabe on it. Oh, totally. But so much of Bruce Springsteen, the, character and the persona has come to be like very representative of americana almost in the same way as like um a fucking 
uh, Cougar Melon Camp. Like, it's just so many of his songs are associated with, like, America. Just classic Americana. And specifically the, like, Americana since we've been alive. Yeah. Yeah, it's a post-Vietnam kind of Americana. Yeah, it's it's the Americana of the late 70s and early 80s. And, like, I think that's why the, the Captain America uh, metaphor just, like, blew my brain straight out the back of my head. Was <laughs> that, like, in much the same way as, as, as Captain America meant something different in the 40s than he did in the 90s than he does today, uh, Bruce's, like, America, quote-unquote, is, like, he, he's changing with the times. Like, he's very sort of representative of what feels like the sort of general frustrated populace of that particular time. He always time. sounds like he's a blue-collar worker. Well, that's, yeah. yeah, that's, like, that's the kind of thing where, like, he... It, in the intro to his book and the intro to the the Broadway show, he's like, I have never worked a nine to five. I have never worked an honest job my entire life until now. You know, the idea yeah. of like you work a nine to five. I have never set foot in a factory. And his whole thing. I is, ain't Dolly. I don't know how to make a living. Yeah. Uh, he has this long thing about like how this is a character, but there's a sincerity from it because he's playing his dad. He's playing the idealized version of his father that he invented as a child that, and, and like, and like America, that man's not real. Uh, nope. you, you have to, the guy, like, uh, the person who you think, uh, the, the people who you think that your parents are when you're, you know, five to ten years old, they're not the real people. Like, my parents are great, and I love my parents, but they are human beings. And when you're a child, you don't think of them as human beings. And your country is not who you think it is when you're, I don't know, even 15, uh, I think in some cases in your 40s or whatever, mm -hmm. it's like it requires effort to examine and realize uh, the America that we, you know, the America that we are are told to praise and love, it, it, it doesn't exist. Yeah, it doesn't fucking exist and it never has. And, but you still need the symbol. Um, you still need, if, you know, you talk about a dream and try to make it real, as Bruce would say. I mean, you his know? ass in front of the American flag is a, like, internationally recognized yeah, icon. That's true. And, and it's like, I would rather live, I would rather, I, I can't, right? It's not real yet. But the the America that that Bruce Springsteen sings about theoretical place in, like, one of my favorite Bruce Springsteen songs, Land of Hope and Dreams, right? Mm -hmm. It's not real. Yeah. It's an idea of a place where everyone is welcome and everyone is free and we take care of each other. Yeah. But you need the, you needed something, you need to rally behind an idea in order to make it so. And there's a, you know, a million great books and songs and films by people who perhaps are more qualified to talk about systemic oppression or the disappointment of the American dream than a white billionaire from New Jersey. But he does a really good job for a white billionaire from New Jersey. I don't think he's a billionaire. He's got like, I think he's got like a hundred million dollars. He's very fucking rich. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, his net worth is below Jimmy Buffett's. I know that. Okay. I say, <laughs> I say he's, he's not, he's not a billionaire, a billionaire, a difference between having a, even a difference between having $50 million and a billion dollars is like fucking, you know, you can do the math, but it's fucking ridiculous. Right. I mean, J Jimmy's only in the 400 millions and like, you'd think he'd be a billionaire by now. Bruce Springsteen net worth. I'm going to look it up. 500 mil. Oh shit! Never mind. Bruce, uh, Bruce has more money than Jimmy. Never mind. You'd think, except until you 
until you remember that a billion dollars is so much more than we think it is because there it's are so billionaires much. because there are billionaires we think that it's like a normal achievable amount but it's not it is an unreal no. unethical amount of money to have yeah uh <laughs> the the um uh ever play that ga- i'm not gonna go out that's too far off topic <laughs> no 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 that's what this show's for dude ever play that uh that really good point and click game uh you are jeff bezos no i have it it is it's um, a text-based it's in it's like a web you can google it it's it's a web browser text-based game and it's and you wake up and it says like you wake up you are jeff bezos and you basically the goal of the game is to try to get rid of all your money and it's like almost impossible damn that's wild yeah and and if you try to do certain things with it you'll be like institutionalized yeah (laughs) uh but at the same time, you know what? Mackenzie Bezos is fucking living that. She divorced him <laughs> and she spent the entire time since she divorced him giving away her money. And it's like, it's what's fun about that is just the idea of like her doing that demonstrates, hey, look what you can do when you have this much money. Uh, and then you, anybody who's like, well, oh, but he couldn't just do that. Being like, uh, here's somebody with half his money doing it right now. Like here's uh, the thing, he totally could. <laughs> yeah, but to bring it back to the boss- um, I, I the boss think is going to give us all six hundred dollars. <laughs> it, it's it's funny that I don't know. I I think that he's I don't I can't think of another another like figure in American music who lives up to their mythology quite as well. Uh, yeah. It, it's I mean I mean in, in probably in hip hop. Uh, I, I, I'm not schooled sure. enough that there are a lot of really huge mythological figures that like are part of our American lexicon. But specifically in this kind of like classic yeah. rock and roll, yeah, most rock, people at this sure. point have in some ways stepped in it. Yeah, or like been been me too'd or like just had some sort of, you know, fall from grace or something like that. But you're right that Bruce is basically just like just as prominent as he was 30 years ago and still just as good. In fact, looks better than he maybe did. Oh, he works out like a, like a fucking maniac. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, so one of my professors told me that, like, he knew someone who, uh, like, worked with the E Street Band in some capacity. and was like, yeah, the, like, backstage after an E Street Band show is a fucking triage ward. <laughs> like, everyone's got their, like, knees wrapped and, like, like, you know, uh, soaking in the, you know, water tank, which is fair because they are all in their 60s. 70s. He's 71. 71 oh, he's, now. he's in his 70s? Damn. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you a crazy thing about Bruce Springsteen. So he lives in a, you know, a big house and like on a ranch in, in, in the in the Freehold, New Jersey area. It's not, Isn't it called it, like Thrill Hill or something? Yeah. Um, and so obviously he likely has home gym equipment. I'm certainly he does now in quarantine in his uh, in his home. He still goes out to the gym. I know somebody who works at the gym where he works out and Bruce Springsteen I'm, up until I'm locked down. I haven't heard since then, but I imagine he's probably doing it at home uh, in his advanced age and considering you shouldn't go out if you don't have to um, like goes to like the neighborhood gym to work out, which is like such a fucking Rocky Balboa thing to me. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and, and like, that's like, I feel like that's part of the character. I mean, maybe he only goes some days cause he wants to like, show off that he works out and be seen working out and like have people be impressed because he's an entertainer and so obviously he wants people to notice that he works out because that's just in your blood when you're that kind of person or you know just the thing of like i get i i have to imagine that like when you're at that level of notoriety like you spend so much of your time keeping to yourself 
just due to necessity that it must be nice to just go out and feel like you're doing a normal thing. Yeah. And the, the and the and the etiquette of a gym is that people are not going to come up to you. You don't talk to people at the gym except for to say are you how much how many how many you know sets you got left. Yeah. So yeah. or do you need a spot? Or do you need a spot? Imagine imagine going up to the boss and asking if he needs a spot. He probably has a trainer with him the whole time. Oh right? yeah. But I, I didn't ask. It's about just a little Steven. Well, they just but did. As we say, speaking of going out though, he was just um East Street him and the East Street band. They just played Saturday Night Live a couple weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Oh, did they? First time they played since 2017. Oh, with Mulaney. I don't know. It was the December 12th. I don't know who the host was. I don't remember who the host was, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. Um, you know, my, my mom, uh, through being a rich person, uh, sort of knows Michael Jordan a little bit. And she told me this story once that, like, she basically asked Michael, like, how do you, like, what what's just what's it like? You know, and his response was, like, anywhere I go... I have at most five minutes before someone spotted me and then it just becomes I get mobbed and then, you know, I just kind of can't go about my day. And like it must be kind of cool to be the sort of person who has both that level of fame but also like a level of like popular respect uh <laughs> like bruce does to be able to just like roll up to your city gym or to your town gym and freehold and like everyone is going to be chill about it which like michael jordan probably couldn't do <laughs> oh certainly, you know? certainly not at the gym i mean the thing oh, is also about if bruce Springsteen goes to a gym people are not looking for bruce springsteen if you're if you're in a gym you know then you there's a, there's a higher likelihood that you care about sports and athleticism and also Michael Jordan is 20 times more famous than Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> That's true. I mean, he did start a movie with Bugs Bunny. Yeah, he did a, he did a space jam. Did Bruce Springsteen do a space jam? No, I was going to say, at least in no. terms of his face, like, to, to be clear, I mean, there are probably plenty of people that have heard Bruce Springsteen a million times but couldn't pick him out of a lineup. If they've sure. never bothered to, if they've never seen him live sure. or never bothered to look him up, like what he looks like currently or at any given time, like. And like, yeah, like, like imagine if you're Bruce Springsteen and you go into a guitar center. I'm always afraid that I'm going to be, you know, certainly haven't had to think about this problem in a while, but I'm always afraid that I'm going to be at a club, um, like seeing a friend show or like between sets for myself. Uh, and I'm going to meet somebody from like, not like the main gal from Charlie Bliss who I would recognize, but somebody else from Charlie Bliss or like somebody from the Menzingers whose face I don't have on file and just, and meet them and say something like really asinine and stupid, like not offensive. I'm pretty like good about not just blurting offensive shit out all the time, but sure. like just something like really fucking pedestrian and stupid that makes me sound like extremely the uncool nerd that I am that kind of doesn't belong in these spaces. Uh, and then like that person will see me play or recognize me in the future and be like, oh, it's that fucking nerd from <clears throat> now I know what band that nerd is in. Yeah, we live in LA, dude. You don't have to explain that for us. <laughs> well, which is funny because that's exactly what I want. Is I want somebody to be like, "Oh, that fucking nerd." Let's watch him play guitar. All right. But that's not the energy he's worried about, dude. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. Well, it's like I had a, I had a fucking. This is before we knew what was up with that guy, right? But I was in a room once, not as a pen capacity as an artist, but as like a record store guy, because uh, I worked at the record store for a long time, and for a while they used to send me out to do conferences and stuff because. Uh, cause they didn't want to. And, and also because like, 
I'm young and I can do the parties and the dinners. And there's a novelty. There was a novelty to me being there because I was always about 20 years younger than the next youngest person in the room. So that kind of gave me, it made me kind of memorable in a way that was, I think, valuable to the store. Uh, but uh, I was at like a party with Ryan Adams. Mm-hmm. And okay. uh, we now know him to be a huge fucking creep, right? And I'm not going to insult people by saying, oh, I could totally tell he was a creep at the time. It's like, no, a lot of people couldn't tell he was a creep. That's why I got away with being a creep for so long, right? Yeah. Um, you release a Whiskey Town record, you can get away with it for a while. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is that a lot of people started conversation with him about music and he seemed totally bored. And I noticed that he had a daredevil pin on his jacket. And then we had a 20 minute conversation about Frank Miller comics. Mm-hmm. Oh hell yeah. Uh, and a lot of, it's the kind of, I don't know. It's the kind of thing where I swear to God, I had a point to this and it wasn't just me like, like bragging about meeting a now untouchable fucking media figure. I swear I had a point to this. What was it? How did we get there? Right. Okay. I'll bet that for a lot of musicians, like Bruce Springsteen being in a gym is like a free space because, because people aren't looking for him at the gym in a way that like, you can have a conversation like Bruce getting to talk to somebody about like a pre-workout mix or like uh, about like anything other than music to people who kind of don't care about his music or who do care about his music but aren't interested in engaging him without it. Just like the idea of being able to talk to somebody about fucking anything else in the real world. That must be so because he's got other interests. Like, but we don't care, right? It's- You're totally right. It is. It's like like I I was joking. Oh, we live in LA. We know. But that is one of the like cardinal unspoken rules of LA is that like if you see a famous person you don't talk to them about their shit if you happen to talk to them at all you talk to them about something else you don't even mention that you know who they are like that's just how LA works <laughs> when I met William Shatner you know what I fucking asked him about Ben Folds yeah his Ben Folds album I was say when I when I met Ben Folds randomly on the street and started talking to him before I knew it was Ben Folds, we wound up talking about Weird Al. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. Like the, the target, the target for like what's the absolute peak amount of success I'd ever want to have in music. I always think Ben Folds because fair. he has an audience that will follow him for life, even though he hasn't put out a good record in about fifteen years. Um, <laughs> uh, the Nick Hornby and, record, I think, was his last good one. That's about fifteen years ago. Oh fuck! <laughs> about about no, uh, yeah, it couldn't have been that long ago because he and I were already together. Yeah, okay. no, that no, that definitely came out when when I lived in Brooklyn. So, All right, but about, still, ten years, ten maybe. Shit. I was yeah. in college, um, uh, and uh, but like he's recognizable for people who know who he is, and people who know who he is are typically going to be people who like him, right? Uh, it's not like you're. He's not famous enough for people to like. Unless he's done shit that I don't know about, which of course is always possible. He's famous enough that he can still go to a bar. Yeah, he can go to a bar, and the only people who are going to recognize or approach him are his fans. Yeah. But but his fans are not are going all, to approach him. Yeah, probably not, right? But he also doesn't have enough fans that he's going to get mobbed anywhere but at a Ben Folds concert or a Cake concert. That's pretty much the only place where he's going to get mobbed, right? He gets to get, like... Something like, oh, I recognize you from that time you were on that show Love Monkey on CBS that has lasted fucking eight episodes. Or I guess he was on The Singing Bee or, or some reality show, right? So maybe he's a little bit more famous even than that, than I would want. But, like, who gives a shit? He's Ben Folds. Like, it's not like he's not going to have that moment 
where like someone comes up to him being like, "Are you fucking? Are you Ben Folds? This guy's Ben Folds." And like you know, he doesn't actually care who Ben Folds, and he's just excited that he's met somebody he's heard of. No one's gonna do that to Ben Folds. Yeah. People will do that to Bruce Springsteen. People sure as fuck are gonna do that to Michael Jordan, right? Oh, totally. I mean, back when I, you know, was first starting out uh, in comedy, I, I sort of always had that same that same thought of like, I, I kind of never wanted to like be on SNL or do something like that. Like the, the goal for me always seemed like Mr. Show or Kids in the Hall, you know, a thing that was a little more personal and a little more like it was not going to be this huge thing with the people that know it, love it. And I think that, yeah, I think you're right that that's the best kind of kind of fan base and fame to have. You know, Fish is sort of the same way. Yeah, but you know what else would be fun? What? Fucking playing Madison Square Garden, my dude. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> oh, I'd be, I'd be so fucking into, like, you know, I can't, I don't know, I, I can't even fucking imagine. Yeah. Because the biggest stage I've ever played is, like, the Count Basie Theater in Asbury Park, New Jersey. But, like, I, in order to play master garden and do it justice because i've seen you know like you, you know what it's like when you see the opening act for a band at madison square garden and they're not allowed to have like the they're not supposed to like they're not supposed to kill it you know what real quick side note we once saw buddy guy open for tom petty at madison square garden and i was like well now that buddy guy's done i don't care anymore <laughs> <laughs> yeah and like he spent the last he there was like a 10 minute chunk of his set where he basically went like yeah i'm buddy guy but i can also play like hendrix and then did like you know voodoo child perfectly oh, wow or i can play like keith richards and did something and just like went through all of the great guitar players i really only went with you to that concert because i wanted to see buddy guy i did not give a shit about seeing tom petty <laughs> But my question though is, did they do the thing to him that I was, I was about to mention? Like, like when you open for the main, when you're opening act at Madison Square Garden, you get the shitty mix. They don't, they deliberately don't mix you as good. Oh, and they left the fucking lights on. And they leave, yeah, it's because like people are finding their seats, right? It's weird. Like, I saw, I went to go see Green Day about one tour too late to see Green Day. It was a uh, mm. 21st century breakdown. Mm -hmm. um, and. The opening acts were the Kaiser Chiefs and Silver Sun Pickups. Mm -hmm. Like both okay. pretty good, respectable bands, who, yeah. right? They both sounded like shit and couldn't move the crowd even a little bit because they're not meant to, right? It, it, it's yeah. it's weird it's, when you play that room. If you play that room and you you don't own that room, there's almost like other than you're going to get paid, I presume, pretty well, and like you're going to make some new fans who have the patience to deal with your weird washed up mix. And your inability to like really own the stage, like I almost like it's it's a ridiculous position for, for thing for me to say from my pitiful position in the music industry. But I kind of felt bad for them. Yeah, I would switch places with them in that. a heartbeat. But I also kind of felt bad for them. Well, it 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 ties back to what you were saying before of that like to to be able to control the crowd like that, you have to have control of the whole situation you have to be able to control the lights to be able to control the mix and stuff and and you can't as the opener you just you don't have that and there's also there's something about madison square garden as, as a venue that like the people that have really made an impression at the garden specifically are people like bruce and people like uh billy joel, billy joel and elton john and fish who like and the dead too really who who are able to make this massive arena, like, th they call it the world's biggest arena for a reason. It's not the largest, but it, it is the, like, 
metaphorically biggest. Um, but they're able to make it feel like this kind of homey, you know, special place where everyone's kind of gathering more like a hearth than like where you'd go to watch the Knicks. And like, uh, to because all roads lead to Rome. It's probably going to be less disappointing than watching the Knicks too. Oh, sure, that's fair. I've never had uh, uh, my experience of seeing the Kaiser Chiefs kind of beef it at the Madison Square Garden does not nearly compare to the like thirty point margin blowout I witnessed last season. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I took Julian, um, my uh, you know the drummer of the Hell Yeah Babies, one of my oldest friends and most best friends, to uh, to see the Knicks for his birthday. Um, I guess it was twenty nine. I guess it was November twenty nineteen, and it was I think part of it was like also his groomsman gift for my upcoming wedding, my then upcoming wedding. Um, and it was like we had fun and it was cool, but we knew we knew by the end of the first period the game was fucking over. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. But the garden feels so much smaller when you're there for like a sporting event than it does when you're there to see like a band. And too. part of that has to do with just the lights being on. You can like literally yeah. see it. it. It's not, it feels huge because it feels intimate because the lights are off in a way. Well, and like, I, I think, I think a lot of people too have, have sort of used the garden as almost like a home base, you know, like it, it's this sort of thing that there are a bunch of different acts that kind of rotate around it. And you can tell when you're seeing, you you can tell when you're seeing a band that is just playing the garden versus a band that is at home at the garden. Yeah. Uh, like, because All Roads Lead to Rome, a few years ago, Fish did a 13-night residency at the garden called The Baker's Dozen. And, like, it was, I think, 13 shows over, like, three weeks and change. Was this in, like, uh, 2016? 2017, yeah. 2017, I remember it well because I worked I worked at Two Pen Plaza above, like right next to Madison Square Garden. So I saw the fans and also experienced other senses as yeah. they walked in and out of the building for the entire two weeks. Yeah. Oh yeah, you you probably saw me at some point. I probably did, and they were they were like people were giving out like uh uh interesting uh baked goods and stuff outside, like vendors that were specific to oh, the shows. Well, the the uh be, because the theme was the, the Baker's Dozen. Each night was themed to a different donut flavor. Uh, and they would give out that donut from this like really good donut place in Philly called Federal Donuts uh, at the top of the show, and then that would somehow influence the set list. Like the first the first night was coconut, so they opened with uh, "Shake Your Coconuts" by Junior Senior, and uh, did an acapella version of "Lime in the Coconut" at one point. They did a Boston Cream night specifically so that they could mash up Boston and cream, and honestly, it slaps. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. fucking good um 
but like that's the sort of thing that you could only really do if you like feel comfortable in what could be the most intimidating you know space in the world for a for performers and like Springsteen did it did it that way too like we uh we saw him one year we saw him the tour where he was cov- where he was the, doing full um, albums oh, working on a dream tour and uh-huh. he was yes. doing full covers and the night we didn't go was the night they did the wild the innocent in the east street shuffle <laughs> oh, I'm but sorry. in fairness we did get to see him cover the entirety of the river which was also cool i was just personally yeah. disappointed um but that's another one of those things where like you know only someone like bruce could could say, hey, I'm going to play a full album every night of this tour, but you're not going to know which one it is. And it's mostly going to be Born to Run, but like his two nights at the Garden, he did Wild, the Innocent, uh, the East Street Shuffle, Shuffle, and the River. And the River. Yeah. And like the River is fucking long. And like that, that whole set show. list. Well, it was ultimately yeah, that, three by the time he then played some greatest hits at the end. Yeah. And like the set list was basically Wrecking Ball another song and then the river <laughs> and then a f- like a 50 minute encore to just do all the other songs you want to hear Bruce do. And like that, that is a risky move playing a record that's that long uh, for people that weren't prepared for it. Uh, but like to just know, Oh my, my fans are going to follow me because they trust that, like, I know what I'm doing. And that's also the home field advantage that he has, though, in New York and New Jersey. Oh, yeah. like, oh totally. He does, he does shit when he plays in, at the at, at the Meadowlands or at the Garden that he would not do in Indianapolis or Belgium or, like, any oh, other places where he would play. Yeah. And, like, oh, yeah. I've, you know, I've never seen him in any other place other than New York and New Jersey. And I've, you know, I've seen him at the Garden, and I've seen him at the Meadowlands, and I've seen him, um, I think, at a couple of smaller venues in, in, in Asbury Park when I was very, very young. Um, but to see him do, you know, to see him do his shit when he knows that there's, there's nobody, there's nobody here in this crowd who either hasn't seen you before or isn't going to see you again. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I personally can't imagine going to see Bruce Springsteen show and then not wanting to go see another Bruce Springsteen show, but yeah. I am in a cult. So like, that's fair. It, it's, it's fine. I, I feel the same way about fish. Really? I am. There's almost no band. The thing about me is. And this is, like, I feel it's just kind of mean, especially because, like, and people may feel this way about my band as well, right? They probably do, and they'd be right. I mean, we don't usually play long sets. There is almost no band in the world that I want to see play for more than 40 minutes. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I just, fair. It doesn't matter how much I love them, or even if they're, like, not only a band that I love, but, like, my personal friends. Like, just on a small small band on the scene who I know all their songs and, like, you know, like, we're going to have a drink after like well let's get the drink uh we, we played a great set leave me wanting more i'll see you again next week or a couple of weeks right but like when i you know we go to go to see like even like like major bands who i like love their whole catalog i almost like an hour is like okay wrap it up we're done i never want an east street band set to be over yeah and like and that's it's just like, and they and they go for like three, three and a half hours, and like I, I can't imagine, I, I, I just, there's not another band that I even a little bit feel that way about, and it's, it's weird. It's alchemy again. It's, it's conditioning. It's probably brainwashing. I don't know. Like I, I just can't, I can't imagine. There's just something. There's something. Just, just something to it. Yeah. And they, they, they sort of feel like that. Uh... They feel like that th- they'd be doing this whether or not there was a show. 
like 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 they have the vibe of like oh this is probably what it's like on the tour bus it feels like that uh that shot from the aristocrats uh, I'm not sorry, the Aristocrats, the Aristocats, yeah, uh, during Everybody Wants to Be a Cat, where, like, the band is just going so hard that they fall through the floor of the <laughs> building and then do it, like, four more times. And, and like, the E Street Band has that energy, and I think it's it's infectious. So, like, you want to see how far they're going to go. You want to see how wild it's going to get and how sweaty Bruce is going to get. So... Talking about seeing him live, I feel like I would be remiss if we end uh, end this episode without me telling the story of the first time we saw him. Yeah, sort of telling our origin story. Yeah, which also is relevant because it was the first like live concert I ever saw that wasn't like my friend's ska band at the VFW. Oh wow! It's the first like real concert I ever went to was Bruce Springsteen oh, at Madison that. Square Garden. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It- it was uh, our, it would have been sophomore year of Yeah, college. it was your sophomore year, my junior year. We had just started dating. Yeah, we had been like officially a couple for like a week. It was 2007. Yeah, it was 2007. We had just started dating. We'd been like seeing each other, but we just like decided like we were actually dating. We'd just kind of been dating. And um, he got his dad to get us tickets to um, Bruce Springsteen at the Garden because we went to school at um, a school called SUNY Purchase, which for people who are not familiar with the State University of New York system uh, is one of the state schools. Um, it's basically the art school. Um, it's where the kids who couldn't get into or couldn't afford NYU go. Yeah. I, I, I had to stop telling people that I transferred from Emerson because everybody's response was, oh, they rejected me. Um, so <laughs> They rejected me twice, baby. <laughs> So anyway, um, so it's a little, it's, it's a state school, but it's really only like 1500 people. It's just outside of White Plains. So it's like a half hour train ride north from the city. So we used to go into the city all the time. So we get in the car to go to the train station and we pull the tickets out. They were for the night before. Brandon had the wrong, wrong date. Yep. He had the wrong date in his head. It, they, it was like we were it was Thursday and the tickets were for Wednesday. Well, I, I, I and I'm not I'm not sure if that was a me mistake or a my dad mistake, because like I had sent him an email somewhere saying, hey, we want to go on this day. I'm not placing blame here. I'm just saying it's what happened. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, no, absolutely. Oh, I think we should relitigate it right yeah, here. Right? Yeah, no, we, abs- we absolutely should. I'm going to relitigate on behalf of myself. And uh, Dylan, you can litigate on behalf of my dead yeah. father. <laughs> it's, no, it doesn't really matter because ultimately we're talking, you know that we saw the show at the end of this story. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. So I'm like, you know what, whatever. We're already in the car. We've already planned to go for the night. Like, fuck it. Let's go into the, let's go anyway. Let's go down, see if we can maybe get tickets outside. Like, worst comes to worst, we hang out in the city for a night, whatever. So we go down and in a, uh, speaking of uh, going all the way back, calling back to Overcook now, how Brandon and I just operate very differently as people. Um, we go down, we get to Madison Square Garden. He uh, gets in the standby line uh, for, for the standby tickets. And I just start yelling at people on the street in front of Madison Square Garden that I need two tickets. <laughs> yeah, like like I almost I almost paid a scalper like four hundred dollars, but the ATM wouldn't go. You know, like just like making all of the worst sort of like Madison Square Garden don't have a ticket mistakes, and then wound up in the standby line outside of the Borders, which was probably four hundred people deep, which was still open at the time. Yeah, yeah, which was still there at the time. <laughs> but yeah, so he's standing in line. And I'm just standing on the street yelling at people. 
Um, <laughs> and and eventually, these two dudes, just like normal normal guys our age, come up to me and they were like, "Hey, do do you really need two tickets?" And I was like, "Yeah." And I kind of told them the short version of what happened, and they were like, "Well, we have." two tickets our our buddies aren't coming if you can bring us to the other person you're going in with to like prove to us you're not going to scalp them we'll sell them to you at face so i run up to brandon i find him in the line i'm dragging these two guys behind me and i run up to him and i'm like give me a hundred dollars and he was like okay (laughs) And, and we turn around we give the guys the cash and they were they were general admission floor so we got to just like wow. really be in there. Um, That's something yeah. I've never done because whenever I go to see the boss, I go with my dad and he's uh, past that point in his life where he wants to be general admission floor for most shows. Yeah, it's hard to stand for three and a half hours. Yeah, I didn't even know what they were. It was just like it was just so like I needed to make the decision in that moment. These two random strangers were trusting me that I wasn't going to scalp the tickets and they were selling them to me for a 100 bucks each. So I was just like, yeah, we'll take them. I don't care where they are. We'll take them. And then, like, after that, we, like, looked at them and realized they were these floor tickets. And it was just, like, such a cool experience. <laughs> yeah, like, significantly better than the seats we were supposed to have had. Yeah. And so then that was my first concert experience, was standing outside Madison Square Garden and getting two random dudes to sell me their tickets. Oh, yeah. And, and that was also my my sort of first moment in that uh, in that relationship. And it was our first official date. <laughs> Yeah, it was our first official date and to like be standing in a standby line and then get a phone call from your like new girlfriend to be like, hey, come here. Where, where are, you? are you? Give me a hundred dollars <laughs> um, is sort of when I realized, oh, this woman is significantly more powerful than I am in, in all sorts of <laughs> cool ways. This is going to be great. 13 years later, here we are. Here you are. Mm-hmm. It all began with like, see, that's the thing. That's, that's a fucking story. Like, I don't have, I have the story of being like, I got to be at the show where they, you know, shot the live Madison Square Garden special and album that I'm like in love with because I was there. And that's, that's but it's cool. not a personal story. It's cool, but it's not a personal story. I, I don't have a cool personal Bruce Springsteen show story other than like the coolest one that I have is that sometimes my dad and I, where we were about to go do the Bruce show, is that we'll we'll call, we'll, we'll, we'll pluck out of the ether some obscure song that we think he's going to do that night. We'll just say, I've decided he's going to do X. And for my dad, often it was the Iceman. He's going to do the Iceman. Uh, my dad has a checklist of like, has is there any song from the entire published or unpublished, like leaked Bruce Springsteen catalog that he hasn't seen him play? And it's like, I think I don't even think there's any more songs left on it. But he'd like pick one. I'm the there. same like, way with Fish. It's like same way. He's like, I haven't heard him do Zero and Blind Terry, so tonight he's going to do Zero and Blind Terry. I'm like, okay. And uh, we were going to see a show. I think it was the last one that I uh, second to last, I guess. I think it was a Wrecking Ball tour. Um, where uh, actually I kept the tab open of some shows. The it was uh, the Mag- the Magic Tours would have been July two thousand and eight uh, at Giant Stadium. And I said, "Night, he's going to do Night track two off of Born to Run, and he's going to play it second. And I'm just pulling it out of the air. I haven't been on Backstreets.net looking at set lists or anything. I don't know what's in the set or whatever." And that shit happened, and I felt like a god. I, felt like a, <laughs> oh, I was shit. like, I, I have commanded Bruce Springsteen to perform a song at my whim, and and, uh, and that made my night. And that like, and to have your night made at a Bruce Springsteen show six minutes into the show, yeah, right. Uh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty good. <laughs> nice. That's fucking. That's awesome. 
Uh, well, that seems that seems like about a, a solid enough place to to wrap it up. Unless there's any any other partic- uh, particular topics in Springsteenia. Actually, we talked about this before we started recording. But is there any chance that that uh, playlist you were talking to us about is like on Spotify that people can find or no? Yes. Uh, so I have made. Uh, I have made a playlist. Uh, I make this a couple of artists that I am every once in a while. There's an artist I'll particularly like, and I'll do a complete, uh, complete catalog list and start to back and pick out my favorites and try to construct an introductory playlist that weaves back and forth through time, has an album like flow that I could use to introduce somebody to Springsteen. Uh, and uh, early on in dating uh, a woman who would become my wife, uh, she, you know, was a big Bruce fan. She's like, hey, would you mind making me like a, a playlist that I might use to try and see if I can get into Springsteen? I'm like, I have it completed already. Here is a link to it. <laughs> there are at least one song from every studio album and you can enjoy if you like. Um, and it is called, um, it is called Spark Fl- Sparks Fly on East Street, the best of Bruce. Uh, and you can search for it on Spotify and follow it if you like. Yeah, if you send us a link, we'll also include it in the show notes. Great. It is three hours and six minutes long. I it is So a standard concert length. Yes, and I will I will I will never let it get longer than that. I will even though even with my he can't put out there you can't honestly he can't have that many more studio studio albums left in him. Let's just he I or I'll have to start breaking the rules because I I am a strong believer in the idea that once a playlist reaches a certain length, it is useless to anyone, um, especially so. But rest assured, it is a it is a, a well balanced uh, exploration of Bruce that will that will open doors for you if you feel it, you attract it, you like. You dive on that record, check it out. There's lots of good shit that's not on the playlist for you to enjoy, and it will take you through every period of his career. So. Uh, Check that shit out if you like. That sounds fucking awesome. Well, Dylan Roth, the boy, uh, boy prophet, walking handsome and hot. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was uh, really fun. Oh my god, it's a great time. Thank you both so much for having me. Uh, as I, I I love to talk about Bruce, uh, especially with the two of you who clearly also love to talk about Bruce. And uh, I don't know, it's a great time. If uh, people wanted to find more of you or the Hell Yeah Babies or your writing on the internet, how could they do that? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Dylan Roth. That's D-Y-L-A-N-R-O-T-H. Dylan spelled like Bob. Roth spelled like David Lee. Uh, there's uh, I'm on basically Twitter is where I, I do most of my shit. The Hell Yeah Babies are at Hell Yeah Babies. That's babies, I-E-S. Uh, it's, I should say the whole thing. Uh, H-E-L-L-Y-E-A-H. B-A-B-I-E-S uh, at Hell Yeah Babies on Twitter and Instagram. We're on Spotify. We're on Tidal. We're on Apple Music and all that shit. I recommend that you check out our latest singles, Great Shot Kid and Mexican Coke on Spotify or wherever else before you listen to Bruce Springsteen because we'll sound better that way. <laughs> <laughs> those are both, the, both of those songs are fucking great. You guys are simultaneously one of my favorite bands and also one of the best sketch teams I know, which is insane because I know a lot of fucking sketch teams. uh, And I can't say that about most of them. Thank you. Uh, We do uh, do, um, for those of you don't know, since we have been unable to perform our shows live, uh, we do a monthly charity Twitch stream. Uh, which is a MTV style music video showcase for other uh, other independent up and coming bands for our own music and also uh, an increasingly uh, insane 
uh, sketch show, basically, where we you know, uh, have a weird, a weird overarching plot that will go over the course of the entire three-hour show. Uh, it's happened by accident, and now we have to do it every month. Oh, yeah. When you guys first started doing those streams, and I was like, okay, they're doing some bits in here. I, I Just knowing knowing the four of you, even though I haven't known you guys for a little while, or for that long, uh, just knowing the four of you, I was like, oh, this is going to just keep getting bigger <laughs> and more complicated and more insane in the way that, that these four weirdos do very well. We got to time travel in four episodes. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, if you are looking for something to do, usually on the uh, typically on the third Saturday of any given month, if you follow us on the social media, we'll let you know about it. We always uh, try to showcase some really great music. We've had Brandon and, and Beth's music on the show um, and uh, let's generally have a really good time uh, with one of the most buck wild Twitch chat rooms you will ever find. Uh, but chaotic good version. Everyone's very nice, uh, and yeah. but also like really sweaty. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's very it's very wet and wild in there. Yeah, uh, in that sort of like last party before everyone leaves for college sort of way, <laughs> or like as as I'm sure the first party for anyone after quarantine is gonna be. Yeah. If I could recommend any place to be after quarantine, uh, I recommend being at the first Hell Yeah Baby show in New York once the store once the stage is open again because it is it's gonna be wild. I can imagine. It is, uh, I mean, I've built it up in my head now for months, but uh, I am I am so excited, and uh, we have people telling us that they're very excited, and I want to share that excitement, and I'm living for it. That's what, that's what, uh, that's what's keeping me sane throughout this environment, is just knowing that uh, when we get to get back out there and play a show, uh, I don't know how tight we're going to be as a band, depends on how long we get to, to practice again after it's safe and my arm's healed up. But uh, hopefully we'll be... No, I will guarantee that we're fucking tight as hell. We won't play until we are. And it will be the best time you've ever fucking had in your entire fucking life. Uh, and if you're having a good time, you will say, hell yeah, baby. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, baby. What about you, Brandon? So yeah, I, uh, all of my shit can be found across the internet at hell yes, Brandon. No relation. <laughs> completely independently. Yeah, that that happened completely, completely... His username for... Yeah, that was my, my high school band... Uh, I forget what we we were originally called, but we, uh, we originally called Dig This, but then we morphed into a uh, thing called Hell Yes Noise. Um, and so I just grabbed the Twitter name Hell Yes Brandon, um, and it, I just never got rid of it and kind of liked it. And then I sort of came into y'all's orbit and was like, well, there, I probably shouldn't use hellyesbrandon.bandcamp now. (laughs) You can do whatever you want. It's not like we invented the phrase. <laughs> that's that's true. But I just because like we I are not I, a big enough deal for it to matter. <laughs> that's true. It would be too confusing to have two HYBs. <laughs> it might be. That is also true. And, and just to add more confusion, the time I did a cover of y'all's song on your show as Jimmy Buffett. That was delightful. That was a really great bit. Well, at the end of the day, Brandon can never win because he doesn't have Turkey Hero as a mascot. So that's right. You, that's you true. better get yourself an adorable, absolute like angel of a three-legged dog to be your mascot, and then then we are in business. We just have a trash. We just have a small trash cat. Ah, <laughs> oh, I miss Turkey Hero. 
but yeah, you can uh, you can find all of my nonsense across the uh, the internet at Hell Yes Brandon. Um, Inkblot has some live shows and a couple tracks uh, up on YouTube from our. Uh, we've got a, a demo EP we recorded last year and a uh, a wild cover of Little Drop of Poison by Tom Waits, where uh, I, I'm not the main singer uh, in the band, but I can do a pretty good guttural like. Tom Waits Howell, so we did that for this Sh- Shrek project that didn't wind up happening, um, and I blew my voice out singing it, so you can yeah, find that. That was, a whole, that was like an old one-take Bartlett, because uh, he was like, well, oh, that yeah. was all I can do. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep. I did two takes singing kind of normally, because we, we were all a little bit like, should we fully commit to the bit of doing this as like a Tom Waits thing? And then I just said, fuck it, and did the full-on Tom Waits take and just shredded my vocal cords, but oh, it was no. worth it. Um, and, uh, you can find some of my, uh, personal music stuff on SoundCloud. Um, my EP hat on a hat, uh, is, is uh, like at the 20 yard line. Uh, it'll, it'll be out, uh, soonish, hopefully. So it's in field goal range. Um, yeah, it's, it's in field goal range. Um, I, I'm hoping the wind is going to carry me right, right down the center. Uh, if that sports metaphor, uh, track, um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, Hat on a Hat's going to be, like, uh, six tracks. I just need to figure out what the middle one's going to be. Um, and, uh, yeah, it'll cost you five bucks in the old uh, band camp when it drops. So uh, keep your keep your ears out for for that. I'm sure once it actually drops, I'm not going to shut up about it. You haven't shut up about it for a year, and it's not even out yet. That's <laughs> true. That's very true. Um, and happy, happy grown-up hour. Uh, we will have a new live show in February, uh, I think we're going to be, we, we've left, uh, the PAX Twitch because we were apparently too body <laughs> for Twitch, um, which is wild to me. Um, but so we're going to, we don't know exactly where we're going to be starting up, but we'll, uh, we'll get that information out there, uh, when it needs to be for our, uh, weird horny kids show. Um, I think that's it. I think that's all of my all of my trash. Beth, what about you? Uh yeah, you can find me everywhere on the internet at, at B Scores, B-E-E-S-C-O-R-E-S with an underscore at the end. Um, but the easiest way to find me would be to follow the show online. You can follow us on Twitter at, at IntuitPod and you can follow us on Instagram at the hashtag IntuitPod. Um I don't have anything because everything is still shut down and I don't have anything anyway. But uh, I do have to uh, thank, as always, Kalen West and Tiny Stills for the use of our theme song. Starting over is a lot like giving up off the album. Falling is like flying. Great album. Great band. Go check them out. That's all I got. So, uh, Dylan, thank you again for uh, taking the old E Street Shuffle with us today. My pleasure. So, yeah. All that being said. Podcast over. (laughs) 